Money? Oh, but what's money to an artist, to a philosopher? It's just a green-colored paper that floats in and out of his life like snow. It's nothing you actually have to, I don't know, work for, is it, Troy? No, not if you have Daddy's little gas card. You shut up. Hello, and welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast where we watch a romantic comedy featuring a love triangle and tell you why the protagonist is terrible at making decisions and should have chosen the option they did not. I am Jennifer. I'm Samantha. And I'm Sadie. And this week, we also have some guests joining us. Yes, we have Nico Lang, an amazing LGBTQ journalist, and we have Christian Rogers, who's a Los Angeles-based artiste extraordinaire. They happen to be husbands robed together in the bonds of matrimony, but despite being married, they are recording from separate rooms of their apartment. Christian and Nico, welcome. Hello. Hi. It's all very Virginia Woolf, but at Virginia Woolf, I had a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast yes. from other rooms. Did she? Well, she was British, right? That that wasn't totally off base. Or at least at a time when everyone in the U.S. had British accents too. <laughs> and it sounded like only a child, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but you two are responsible for selecting the movie that we're doing this week, which Sadie will announce and, and briefly summarize for us before we all process the collective trauma of revisiting this movie. Okay, is it my turn? Is it me? Okay. (laughs) Today's movie is Reality Bites, 1994. And boy, what a 1994 movie it is. (laughs) This movie, like several others we've discussed recently, is both a rom and a com, but it's not really a rom-com. At least, not the type that my dear beloved Leap Year is. As I said, it was made in the 90s, and it stars Winona Ryder as Lainey, which is the most 90s name ever engineered. Lainey is an aspiring videographer fresh out of college in Houston. She's living with her group of counterculture friends, and they're all struggling to survive in the changing economy and find their place in an unfamiliar world and not sell out. So the cast of characters... There's Vicky, her rockabilly roommate who awaits test results for HIV most of the movie. And Sammy, who is gay, wears glasses, and just vibes the whole movie. Uh, then there's Troy, played by Ethan Hawke, a coffeehouse musician living rent-free on Lainey's couch, mind, nightmares, etc. There's this unspoken sizzling attraction uh, between the two from the jump, but they're not together. And early on in the movie, Lainey gets into a semi-minor car wreck with Ben Stiller, who plays Michael, and he works at this MTV-esque network. And he is the polar opposite of Troy. He has a nice car, a nice haircut, and he's also nice. (laughs) He's just nice. (laughs) Um, And he learns about a documentary that she's been working on about her group of friends and offers to pitch it to his network. And throughout this movie, Lainey goes on this emotional journey where she gets fired. But the firing was really... I mean, she she should have gotten fired. She's completely sabotaged her host, even though he was an asshole. She briefly alienates her friends and gets a lot, a lot of flack from Troy about dating a yuppie like Michael. He's such an, he, Troy is such an asshole, guys. Spoiler. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> Troy, Troy half acidly confesses his love to her several times throughout this movie. And after it's revealed that Mark, that Michael was able to air her documentary, but only after they heavily edited it, she falls into Troy's arms. Michael keeps trying to apologize. Troy keeps being an asshole and he leaves. He goes off to Chicago without telling her because his dad died, but still he fully doesn't even call. But despite all that, Lainey has made her decision and the movie ends with her and Troy passionately reuniting, kissing, and then later joking around and chilling on her couch. In scene. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Where to begin? Well, I have to say, so when, uh, when Samantha told me about the podcast and asked for my opinion on if we did, if I were to come on and talk about a movie, what movie I would pick that matched the premise of the podcast. This was easily to me the most obvious example in that I didn't have to think about it for two seconds. It's like if you ask me a movie where the heroine very clearly falls in love with the wrong man, like, yeah, I don't have to think about it. It's reality based. Because <laughs> it's not even that I think that Ben Stiller is the right guy necessarily, because as we were doing the intro for the podcast, I realized I couldn't remember his name. And you learn so little about the character. Like, you learn that he works for a TV network. He seems to be a mostly nice guy. He listens to Peter Frampton, I guess which is probably coded as being losery, but the movie doesn't really follow through on how I'm supposed to feel about him listening to Peter Frampton, who was for a while my friend's upstairs neighbor. So that's something. <laughs> Anyhow, we're not talking about Peter Frampton. We are talking about the fact that, like, the, the Ben Stiller's character is so clearly set up as the fall guy or the Baxter for this woman who has this, you know, this uh, giant moral crisis, right? That the movie doesn't even ever see him as a viable option to where his characters never really do developed, which is really sad because I think that if they were to give him any sort of like personality trait, he would very clearly be the better option in that Troy has no real redeeming qualities, despite looking like Ethan Hawke, which really isn't such a bad thing. But other than that, we have a guy who sleeps on her couch, is mean to her, is incredibly cruel to her throughout the movie in ways that feel like deeply hurtful, but the movie seems to just kind of dismiss. Like, there's this moment where it looks like she's going to go off with the other guy, who I'm forcing myself to remember his name, Michael. And he sings a violent femme song to her to humiliate her oh in God. front of everyone in the room. And then, you know, she runs away because she's very upset. And then it's never addressed again, like, what a horrible, horrible thing that is to do to someone, even if you're upset. And if the movie is trying to redeem him... I completely get it, but it, he never has to do any emotional work really to get there. Like at the end, his dad dies and it's as if like all is just forgiven. Like he's obviously gone through this like terrible thing that changed him, but we're never ever shown the change. It's just sort of like he had to do the bare minimum the entire movie to get Lainey's affections. And at the end of the movie to like get the girl, he again has to do the bare minimum. It's like this movie is like, like white male privilege in rom-com form. It's really, really, really mind boggling. And it's sad because I think it mars with otherwise a really good movie in that Helen Childress, when she initially pitched the film, pitched it as this sort of ensemble comedy about a group of friends in their 20s trying to find themselves. And the, the romantic triangle wasn't really a big part of the movie, but it became a big part of the movie essentially to get the film made. And I think you can tell by how little 
the film even goes on to invest in the romantic potentialities of, of the love triangle. Because I think if it had, then we would have obviously ended up with a very different conclusion. End of rant. <laughs> yeah, at a certain point, Janine Garofalo and Steve Zahn just kind of like disappear. Like, <laughs> they don't exist anymore. They got Avengers snapped out of this movie or something like that. <laughs> and I want to see the version of the movie, like you said, that's like tells me more about these other characters and is less about who am I going to pick this guy who is awful to me all the time or Ben Stiller. The film's about, you know, a bunch of 23 ish year olds trying to like find themselves. And that the only, if the only character in the whole film that really maybe truly has a grasp of who they are is, Ben Stiller's character. If you give him too much, the like all of a sudden the angst of all these twenty-three-year-olds doesn't really uh, might not be as interesting. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I have a theory, by the way, Nico, that Troy is experiencing time in reverse. So his bad behavior is a result of anger over the death of his father. That's happening to the characters in the film like it's going in the wrong order but because Troy is moving through time backwards it makes sense for him to be acting out Samantha you had to Benjamin button Troy to get through this movie and I think that says something about all of us it's a better explanation than him actually just being that much of a jerk Sadie you have a notorious oft expressed aversion to Ethan Hawke and I feel like we need, we've been waiting to fully dive into it now. Oh, no. <laughs> and now is the time. I, I just don't like him, Samantha. I, I, my aversion to him started with that movie. I think it was called Boyhood. Boyhood. It's yeah. Boyhood. Yeah. The, the one that I, that really was the genesis of my hatred of Ethan Hawke. And in this movie, I will say that I found him at his most palatable to me, for, and that's wild. But there's just something about him that just really feels like an asshole. Like, yeah, all of this tracked for me. <laughs> like, everything that he did, I was just like, he's not playing a character. This is, this is who he was in 1994. <laughs> yes. This is how he acted. Sadie, may I second your opinion to say, yes. Samantha has not called me out here for my own personal irrational celebrity hatred of Ethan <laughs> Hawke. <laughs> but... I'm sorry, guys. He he has a great face. He really does. Wow. However, he always struck me as that guy who would walk into a party with a fucking acoustic guitar and insist <laughs> that everybody else go silent and listen to him croon and and tell everyone in the room his very average thoughts about the world. And then I saw this movie and I was like, my God, that, wow, he's so great at playing that character. That really is him. <laughs> well, I mean, you're not totally off base in that the reason that uh, Lisa Loeb is on the soundtrack is that they were good friends and lived the hall across the hall from each other, I believe is the, the internet approved version of it. 
although I'm now friends with Lisa Loeb on Twitter, so she might tell me differently. And he recommended her for the movie because they needed a song for the end credits. And he was like, oh, I know just the girl. And the song ended up going to number one, making her the first unsigned artist to ever go number one. And all of that is because, I guess, of Ethan's love for singer-songwriters who interrupt parties with guitars. Okay. I would have different feelings, though, if Lisa Loeb interrupted my party with a guitar than if Ethan Hawke did so. That's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Or what if Lisa Loeb played the Troy character? Mm, oh, now that would be Nico. You've done it. <laughs> a very different movie. Oh, now Nico is queering our reading again. <laughs> here we go. This is why I was brought here. I think that his performance is really good. And this is just like a testament to how good his performance is because, because, you know, uh, he's, he's a nice guy. He's great. And like, okay, good. IRL, but in the movie, I hate him too. Like as, 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 you know, I've met him, uh, a few times and I, I wait wait you mentioned this before the podcast but yeah I'm I still haven't processed the bombshell that you have interacted with Ethan Hawke in the flesh oh uh <laughs> actually so the long the long the short version of the long story is I used to work at this frame shop in New York and hopefully I'm not I'm not breaking any kind of NDA thing I have. But he would come in and he was super sweet. But the first time I ever worked with him, I actually thought he was Mark McGrath. Uh, (laughs) 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 So I was like, I was like, you know, looking him up in the system and I couldn't find uh, Mark McGrath's number. And I was like, oh, this is so weird. And I was like, of course, I like with all clients, you say, what's your name? And he's, he's really nice. And so when I watched the movie, I was like, this is not the Ethan I know. But I still hated him in the film. It's like, he sucks. And that's, I that's really why we're all here is to talk about how much Ethan Hawke sucks as a person in this movie and is obviously the <laughs> shittier of the two people to go with. Good work, Ethan Hawke. It's such a relief to hear you say that he's actually a, a, a nice person in real life. And it does make me realize how good of an actor he is because this just feels like such a bone deep performance. <laughs> Like it, se- <laughs> it seems so like sweet. He's so yeah, sweet. that's so and nice. He's like whenever he, whenever he came in, he only ever talked about his daughter and whatever performances she was doing. You think that like with Boyhood and all these things that he would be like, oh, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. All he ever talked about was his daughter's like school performances and all the, everything that he brought in work wise revolved around his daughter. It was very kind, very sweet. So he didn't walk into the frame shop, Christian, and say, "How would you like to frame a picture for the star of Reality Bites?" <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but but you know, it's I didn't know about the movie until Nico said this is what we were going to be critiquing, and it just feels so painfully obvious that he has very few redeeming qualities, and that she she should not go for him. So at the end of the film, I just ended up kind of like throwing my arms up and being like, "You stupid twenty three year old," you know. <laughs> You could have a rich, you could have a rich executive who could pimp out your stuff. But again, that's that's the 2020 reading of this, and not the 1994 <laughs> reading of it. Which in 1994, I probably felt more like Ethan Hawke's character than I did Ben's character now. Which that's a totally different critique. I, and just a, as a disclaimer, we 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 came to the conclusion that all of us are all but Sadie are Gen Gen Xers. And Sadie is a... Oh, we are? Oh, no, we're, we're millennials. millennials. We're millennials. Yeah. And Sadie is a... She's Gen Z. I'm Gen Z. <laughs> yeah. And we love you for it, Sadie. Don't Thank ever you. change. We I need mean, somebody like, young here. Grow and learn, but, you know, be, stay Gen Z forever. Can't change help. my birth date. 
<laughs> and I insulted Sadie before the podcast by asking if she even knew the Gen, Z- Gen X existed, <laughs> which I didn't mean as an insult more than I meant it as an insult to maybe Gen X for just fading from the culture. Yeah. Maybe my question, maybe Tari pointed towards Sadie might be, there's like this, there's a constant theme of like selling out and like not selling out. And obviously Ben's character totally sells out her her project, which she had a vision for in thinking that he's going to help her. But of course, everybody thinks Wynonna character's uh, character then is, is selling out. Sadie, did you have, when you watched it, did it even cross your mind the idea that like why somebody would not want to sell it did did you even think about that i mean i understand a little bit of where she's coming from because she had this you know your first big thing that you've created you have this really concrete version or idea in your head of what it's going to look like and if anybody even suggests one thing wrong about it then you will lose it you <laughs> but i think that now like jen's ears are just like really annoying little business people and they they just walk around and they sell out constantly there's no problem with it but for laney it's a really big deal and i think uh, i'm i'm thinking specifically about the scene at the very beginning of the movie which i didn't fully understand and i will probably need one of you to explain it where her dad is giving her a car but she doesn't want the car because is the car too nice? Question mark. Uh, yes. It's wild. This is the Generation X er text. This is voice of a generation stuff. Lainey is like the Lena Dunham character in Girls of Generation X. That's how I feel about her. She she too <laughs> thinks that her like little life and insular group of friends contain all the secrets of the universe that everyone needs to share and bask in. So uh, now that I've got that out of my system, but yeah, she doesn't want to be seen driving around a BMW. Oh my God. Reputation is, yeah. And as a millennial whose <laughs> housing costs are like 50% of my income, I would take a BMW <laughs> in a second. Uh, yeah. As someone who spent a, a bit of her first year of college driving a 1993 Lumina without, without airbags, <laughs> I'm suddenly so mad at Lainey. And also, don't forget, she also got, remember as part of the gift, she got that gas station credit card. Oh. Which, which yes. Which handy. Which can I don't we, even know if that's a thing anymore. Can we take a quick sidebar into how much Lainey sucks in this movie real fast? Yeah. I just want to get yeah. my feelings out. Okay. So, first of all, Lainey is the valedictorian of her college and gives the absolute worst commencement announcement of all time. <laughs> Then she goes on to be conflicted and and sort of take, but never drive the BMW. I don't even know what happened with that. If you got the BMW, bitch, get that shit titled to yourself and you can sell it and use the cash to do whatever you want if that's what daddy is handing you. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Instead, she eventually uses the gas card to just rob her father for quick cash (laughs) instead of actually doing any work. When she decides for good 
good reason to quit her job because she has an abusive and, you know, nasty, I I don't know that he's directly her boss, but a person who is over her at her work instead of, you know, reaching out and trying to find another job elsewhere. And she just sabotages him very violently on air and then gets very justifiably fired. And then immediately after violently disses her friends who tries to offer her a job at the Gap where she's just gotten promoted to manager and kind of wrecks that relationship. She's pretty shitty to her friends throughout. Yeah. She she really disses her friends who tries to help her out there. And then again, I got so mad when Steve's on. He's on a date with a guy he's really into at the end after he has done this enormous thing of coming out that like, I guess she was seeing as fodder for her documentary. She doesn't even give a shit. She's just like, oh, where's Ethan Hawke right now? Like, I don't give a fuck about what you're doing right now, Steve Zahn. (laughs) I feel like like the movie doesn't really care about Steve's character, but it feels like kind of tacked on. So that way, maybe her shitty documentary can actually have some some substance to it. You know what I mean? It seems like- They need a guy. It seems like the two most interesting plots are, are, are his, him coming out, and then Janine Garofalo's character her like her fear of having HIV in the film it seems to kind of be like honestly the most maybe the most interesting plots but they're also kind of the most minor plots yeah where is their movie why is this movie about Lainey and Troy (laughs) because that was the only way it got made like that was the movie that she originally wanted to make was the movie that was about the side characters Mm. and like unfortunately in order to get made they forced her to make it about the least interesting people in the movie and to me the the biggest detriment to this film is that when we when Christian and I were watching it it'd been it's been a number of years since I've seen this movie. I really loved it in high school because it was a movie in which all the characters watched the same things that I did and listened to the same music that I did, which when you're 17 means a lot and can sort of substitute for lots of other different things in a, in a movie. But rewatching it, I told him how much the movie reminded me of Ghost World because essentially it's a movie about a woman who graduates either high school or college, is mean to her friend, friends, can't get a job, and then like spirals out throughout the film, except the difference is with Ghost World, it recognizes that like Enid has lots of growing to do, whereas with Reality Bites, it doesn't seem to understand that Lainey's a bad person. Like it seems to forgive a lot of her behavior and think for no reason that she's a Pulitzer Prize worthy documentarian, despite the fact that her footage <laughs> is the biggest garbage I've ever seen in my life. I actually really agree. Like Roger Ebert in his review, like called out the fact that she's bad at filmmaking and the the movie or or sizzle reel really they show her at the end is a vast improvement and the fact that she freaks out over a two minute sizzle reel like just really boggled my mind like do you understand you're not seeing the movie or the tv show you're just seeing highlights but nonetheless it's like i just i don't i wish the movie could like pull laney's head out of her ass for her but the problem is is that it was made by people who are so close in age to the people that the movie is about and that you know the film was essentially about the screenwriter's friends that there's no kind of critical distance whatsoever to go like Hey, I guess Lainey's maybe not so good at movies and also a bad person. Yeah, this 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 movie is is kind of like the you know those like Russian nesting dolls. It's a very <laughs> like it's a very meta movie in terms of like how the screenplay was then adapted and how Ben Stiller 
had to adapt it and certain concessions that had to be made and how the idea of selling out, like, it's funny that, you know, I think the budget was something like maybe $5 million or something to, to make the movie. But, you know, the, the idea that, that in some ways going from screenplay to film is almost the same exact thing as the main characters, her own crappy version of something trying to become something that the general public can, can then consume. And I think Ben Stiller, maybe, again, by switching the characters, making, you know, the two pretty ones that we all love, the focus of the the love narrative, I think there was a certain amount of selling out there, too, that that, that Ben Stiller, yes. as the director, had to to make. And it's funny just, just how meta this whole movie, all the way from the screenplay to the actors to the production of it, it's, it just, it's just very meta. <laughs> I wish they had written that in, like a scene with Ben Stiller talking to Lainey being like, you have to understand, it's like this other project I worked on last year. This it was supposed to be a, a text of a generation, and I had to turn it into a rom-com to get it on TV. What's even wilder about the meta-narrative is that we were doing a lot of reading about this movie, and uh, Helen Childress, uh, the screenwriter, was really downplayed in terms of her own contributions to the movie, and a lot of her like little uh, stylistic flourishes with the screenplay were actually uh, later attributed to Ben Stiller. Like during the the you know had it recently had this twenty five year reunion, and one of the executives who made the movie was talking about the production, and they talk about the gas station scene, and they say, "Oh, that was all Ben. That was all Ben." And Helen Childress oh, like pointed to the screenplay and said, "No, that exact even like the visual cues in that scene are written into the screenplay." And at the end of the movie the movie that gets made of, of Laney's documentary isn't the documentary. It's like a crappy, like uh, fictionalized version that is created by Ben Stiller's character. So in a sense, you have like this woman's work in both cases that gets attributed to a man. Whoa. Okay. Nico, <laughs> you just turned me completely around on that because I was about to roll in from having grown up with the real world on TV through my whole MTV watching life being like, well, that scene at the end didn't even seem that much different from, you know, these people's whatever they were talking about. But oh my fucking God. The story of the movie is more interesting to me than the movie now. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, it's, it's just kind of dark and twisted how, how much the film mirrors reality in so many Anyway. <laughs> well, it gets, it gets better because Helen Childress actually didn't make another movie, like any kind of movie, for another 20-something years until she got a Lifetime movie starring Christina Ricci about Nellie Bly made, I think, two or three years ago. She didn't have another screenplay to her name in that whole time. That was like a triple hit. So, bam. Oh my god. So, so, speaking of generational differences, one thing I'm really interested in, you like just the Gen Xiness of this movie is is a lot for me in the way that this movie handles Steve Zahn's coming out where like they do this ironic role play scene where he's pretending to come out to his mom and being like, "Hi mom, I'm a homosexual. Maybe you should join P Flag." It was just like so hilarious to me to think about the difference between like how a Gen Xer might come out and then Gen Z coming out <laughs> videos, which are just like full on straight to camera, like jokes and gags and rainbow cakes and shit. <laughs> 
they hadn't learned to be stunt queens yet. <laughs> but I do actually, I love, so I think Janine Garofalo is the highlight of the movie for me. Yes. It was a star-making role for her, and I think for good reason. And there's this one line reading in that scene that gets me every time. I think it's so funny. It's the way she says P-flag. She doesn't say P-flag, she says B-flag. <laughs> and it almost sounds like the robot from OK Computer, but if it tried to like sound like a person and I love it. I would listen to her say P flag every moment of every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> she was she was by far the best character to me and also the funniest yeah. and she had the most depth. I was so interested in her storyline and it really just felt like I know for all the reasons that we talked about like the reasons why she didn't get focused on but it just felt like an incomplete movie because it just felt like we were constantly being forced to turn our heads toward Laney and we kept like trying to turn it back to Vicky and like we kept getting our heads pushed back and pushed back. Speaking of her storyline, I, I I know a fair amount about LGBT history, but did they have to mail her blood sample to like Siberia or something? <laughs> I, like how long does it take for her to get her test results in this movie? Yeah, because it's presumed she's waiting for like weeks to find out, right? Yeah. In like 1994 wasn't the Stone Ages. They could still turn that around in a lab in like a week at least, right? Samantha, she she accidentally checked the box that said deliver via pigeon. It's not her fault. (laughs) This is 94. Messenger pigeons were still like in vogue. So it's that like, you know, it was it was big in Portland. I lived there during that time. They had to send a blood sample on a horse-drawn carriage to South America. Because she has that scene in the diner where she's like, for all I know, I could be sitting here with HIV. And I'm like, wait, you didn't find out yet? Like, how much time has elapsed? Her best line from that scene is when she's talking about how everybody at her funeral is going to wear halter tops and chokers or quote shit like that. (laughs) Oh, God. Christian, you know, actually, that was what hit me. I was like, that would be my funeral today if I died tomorrow. (laughs) Halter tops, chokers and shit like that. So please, please bring it. Like, wear your fake jewels to my funeral if I die this week. Also, can we talk about her 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 diary with her list of people she's slept with? Let's. I was jealous. Because <laughs> at that yeah, point, right? at that point in high school, like like I I didn't need a page at all. I could probably I could probably use like one finger and yeah, like, scribble it down. How old is she possibly there? Like twenty two? They're like graduating college age. She's maybe twenty three. If like, I would if I would have saw this in nineteen ninety four, I would have been like, God, I am doing something very wrong in my life. How <laughs> many people she slept with at the time? It was like sixty six or sixty four or something. Oh. I just I just remember I just remember thinking as she was writing them in that it was going to be like 69 but she wasn't there yet so Uh, close i hate to tell you this i think you know i think you know this about me being that we're married but i was way past 66 at the time oh my god little hooker (laughs) revelations nico is the coolest (laughs) of us all I, I unsurprisingly was, i was a really big whore in college like empowered empoweredly so but i slept with everyone so. i think i think that statistically gen x had a lot more sex than millennials or or gen z and it was hard it's hard for me not to attribute that to the fact that they have much less anxiety about being able to make rent than than subsequent <laughs> generations i think you could do a direct correlation between that 
Because when these characters lose their jobs, they're not like, oh, I'm going to get evicted. They're like, oh, I can just go like work at the Gap or something and we'll like (laughs) scrape it together or something like that. Just use the gas card. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which, what the hell is a gas card? I've never So her thing, so the gas card was like, I remember those were big back in the day. Like your parents, like my, I was poor, so we didn't have one. My mom, I don't think we could get the credit for it. But anyway, we, um, there were things, I remember my grandparents had one, but like the way in which way, like, you know, she's supposed to be this valedictorian, which maybe this does make her the smartest person. We're getting all that cash at the end by charging up her dad's gas card. But at the same rate, like you're the valedictorian. Shouldn't you be doing something that's like, that's like what a meth head would do, you know, <laughs> yeah. the gas station offer. If somebody, if somebody on La Brea, if somebody at the La Brea get shell station was like, Hey, can, can you just give me cash and I'll put this on my card? I'd be like, you most definitely stole that fucking card. And I would not engage with <laughs> no. it. But somehow in the year 1994, <laughs> when Ona Ryder was able to charge up how, how many hundreds of dollars. And that's also too, when, that's when like gas was like a dollar or something, you know, like that's when gas was cheap. Like, you know, gas is not, you know, crazy expensive. That right was a moment. lot. But yeah, like you could fill up your tank for $20, you know, back in the day. So to charge up $400 worth of gas, she had been out there hustling all day long. And not a single person was like, girl, do you need drug money? <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> she majored in money laundering. But, but I mean, we've already uh, come to the conclusion that she's sort of the worst valedictorian in the world. Not only does she appear to be enrolled in a film program in Houston and not Austin, Texas, for some reason, which really isn't that far. Just go a couple, couple towns over. Girl, um, but like during an interview, they ask her the definition of irony, which really isn't very hard, and she can't come up with anything. Yeah. And but Troy knows. Troy knows what irony is. Well, Troy is Troy. Troy, Troy, Troy has that like. It's because it's his only personality trait. That's that's why he knows what it is. Well, it's funny for Troy, Troy being a character who's constantly quoting things and like being super smart. He did kind of pull that out of his back pocket so quickly that I was kind of impressed. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, oh, he probably doesn't have much to stand on, but he pulled that out pretty quick. It impressed me. At least he has an irony. Okay. Now, now that Christian gave Troy the the ups there, it's time to talk about how much Troy sucks uh, and why <laughs> our girl should have picked Michael instead. Do you think that Ben Stiller is more physically attractive than Ethan Hawke? That's what I'm curious to no. talk about as we dive into our no, fully no. Ethan Hawke looked fully dirty throughout this entire time. So that was what I was going on was that his breath was bad. Well, half half of the week, I I, I could empathize with that so Sadie would you rather <laughs> Ben Stiller or Ethan Hawke this is ben the real Stiller. test Ben Stiller purely because he looks like he'd taken a shower and also I thought that he was pretty hot in this movie he's like a nice age I think he's like 28 when this movie was filmed that's fine for me and like during the sex scene we have to talk about it with Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder she like keeps running Ooh. her hands through Ethan's hair and I was like cringing sitting there I was like oh she's gonna come away with her hands like wet with grease I just hated hated that scene how he was like breathing on her I just recall some kind of weird breathing thing and like maybe I'm a shitty kisser or something but I'm like I'm not I don't do like he did some hover thing where he like hovered and then breathed 
breathed on her. And I was like, I was kind of like, ew. No, Christian, you're totally right. He went in. It was so gross. Okay, because I never thought I would pick Ben Stiller in any sort of sex choice before. But the way (laughs) Ethan Hawke (laughs) went in for that, he he opened his mouth as wide as it could go and then exhaled while he was coming (laughs) at her. He like his jaw. He seems like, he seems totally like the kind of guy that would like ask you like during this I was waiting for him to be like like to pull out his wiener and then be like yeah you like it don't you like he needed like validation like he's he's that kind of guy like he like he would if you didn't compliment him, he would he would force it out of you, and you have to be like, "Yeah, delightfully average, good, okay." <laughs> I watched a I, I watched a horror movie recently called The Taking of Deborah Logan, where <laughs> in the conclusion of it, an old woman unhinges her jaw and is starting to eat a little girl like she's a snake. And maybe the most revulsed I have felt since then was the breath scene in yeah. in. Re- Reality sucks, or reality is bad, or reality, whatever this movie is called. Not good at all. Also, just to stick up for Ben Stiller's attractiveness for a second, maybe it's just because I'm the whore that has slept with everyone. Um, that's my brand. Um, is I found him kind of endearing. Like, I think Ethan Hawke is definitely more attractive. But his, like, little ears in this movie are so cute. And I also think that, so it was another fun truth bomb. It was the cinematographer is Emmanuel Lubezki, the same guy who did The Revenant and Gravity. Yeah. And his lighting makes everyone in this movie look so good. And I truly think that while still not being super sexually palatable, it might be the best Ben Stiller's ever looked in his life. Like, all of the lighting on the little ears was great. Yes. <laughs> it worked for me in this one. I was, I, I'm with Sadie. I'm team Ben Stiller in this one. But maybe if like Ethan, they had, they had allowed Ethan Hawke to use shampoo during filming, like I would feel differently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, or shaved his chin. Yeah. He went nothing. My, uh, I, th- I thought that Ben Stiller's character for being like, you know, he's supposed to be this like MTV uh, executive person. I think that he actually comes across as really kind of like, doofy and charming like you know he's in his car on his phone fumbling with this map and then Winona she she, so so rudely I don't even know how to say it she threw her cigarette in his car which is like like, that's like oh my god if you did that in the 21st century like oh my gosh you couldn't you couldn't do that yeah and he's like ha 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 I actually thought that when they're in his office you know uh, I thought it was kind of charming that he had that that monkey sculpture the planet of the apes one you know, I was like, oh, that's charming. But then she breaks it and isn't really very remorseful, uh, which <laughs> right? that's kind of shitty. And I was like, boy, get her out of your life right now. Yeah. She straight up said, oh, I'm ruining your life. And he's like, no. <laughs> and it's like, no, she really is. It Fucking ma- cut her loose. Get her out of here. It begs the Make question. Make her pay you. It, makes, it begs the question, though, what kind of, what kind of, uh, what, how has he gotten himself in such a position in which he thinks being treated like that is okay? Right. Like, what were his other girlfriends like? <laughs> You know, if she I could throw cigarettes at you, if she could throw cigarettes in your car and break your man toys, like, <sighs> man, she gonna walk all over you. Yeah, we never get to really have sympathetic stuff for him when we never get to kill off any of Ben Stiller's family. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway, if if you know what, if it had gone down exactly as it had in this movie, and it was an R relationships post these days, we would all be extremely in his corner. Well, I'm gonna so so Nico and I live here in Los Angeles. I'm actually gonna go pitch a newer version of this, which is kind of like a, a boyhood version where all of these characters run into each other again in the year 2020, and then we see how this hashes out in 2020. Yes. <laughs> I want to see. I want to see. I want to see Ben Stiller's character roll up again to Winona Ryder. <laughs> And have that interaction again. And then she sees Ethan Hawke's character, presumably like one of those aspiring musicians here in L.A. writing, you know, shotgun with her and see how (laughs) how well Ben Stiller's Ben Stiller's doing compared to to, to them and maybe uh, maybe we can all get the, the just desserts that we want Christian they have already made a sequel to this film Nuh-uh. called Juliet Naked uh, with Doug Byrne I'm not familiar with this movie <laughs> in which in which Ethan Hawke plays an aging rock star who has made all sorts of mistakes in his life and has all sorts of previous relationships and in my head canon Winona Ryder and Reality Bites is one of them and then he like falls in love with with the wife of one of his biggest fans over email and then in person or something like that. This is also a movie I've been trying to get Sadie to watch (laughs) to no success ever since I've learned that she (laughs) can't stand Ethan Hawke's performances. The only thing that Ethan Hawke has going for him in this movie is that he is my age. (laughs) So I am a little bit predispositioned toward him. (laughs) I do think it's funny talking about the 2020 version of it, though, in that, like, in the 2020 edition of Reality Bites, I feel like there would never be a question that she would realistically choose Troy. Like, that would not even be a conversation. Like, the idea of this girl, because the, the Michael character doesn't really represent a person. He represents the idea of selling out, which is why the movie doesn't bother to develop or invest in him. And I feel like in the 2020 version of it, like, none of this would even be, like, a concern or a complaint. Like, it reminds me of that that Renee Zellweger Netflix show What If that's really bad but she gives like a delicious camp performance in the middle of it and essentially it's an update of Indecent Proposal and that it's about a couple who get an offer from a wealthy person to that they'll get a bunch of money if one of them has sex with the wealthy person and in What If because you know it's the 19 version of that plot it's there's never consideration whether they will or will not take the money like it's obviously just a they're definitely taking the money and I, I kept thinking about that in, the, in reality bites like man if this were 2020 no one would give a shit that that guy worked for MTV they'd be like great I can be an influencer <laughs> right <laughs> Oh my God! Speaking of Renee Zellweger, y'all, what did she appear in this movie? Yeah, like she briefly, was a yeah. Took up, yeah, yeah. Okay, because I was like, oh, that's Renee Zellweger. She's gonna show up again, and then I forgot this was before Renee Zellweger was a star. So there's a few. Cameos. I didn't even clock that. Yeah, Damn. she has the, she has the barely credited role of Tammy with an eye. <laughs> her first screen appearance. Oh wow! Really? Oh, this was her first. Oh well, she really rocked it with Sugar High. And um, oh my god, now I'm gonna embarrass myself by forgetting the name of the movie with Liv Tyler and all those others that I watched so many times. Empire Records, is that what we're talking about? Yes, Empire Records. I've never seen it, but I figured it out through context clues. Oh, thank you, Nico. You saved me. 
<laughs> and, That's what I'm here for. Oh, I love that movie, even though it also is probably similarly <laughs> terrible, but less terrible than this one. Is that also a Gen X text? Would we consider Empire Records to be a Gen yeah, X movie? Yeah, for sure. Yes, because they are all about saving the sanctity of their record store by somehow not selling more. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> What it must have been like to be an entire generation <laughs> preoccupied with the idea of making too much money. <laughs> <laughs> That's really worked out for us, I think. Uh... <laughs> I, I will say, though, I found some parts of this movie very relatable, even though Gen X and Gen Z pretty far apart. Like there's just some aspects of it and it's mostly not the the core of it of what they're trying to talk about with like selling out and all that, but the 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 con- the conversations that Lainey has with boomers feels very very realistic even now in 2020 (laughs) especially when I talk to like my parents for example who are boomers you know like the amount of times where I've gotten the conversation where it's like oh you're just not working hard enough or like what you need is ingenuity why don't you just go out and invent something (laughs) it's like do I look like a cartoon character I was really popular in high school. What's your yeah. problem? Yeah. I baby. <laughs> I got that one too, Samantha. God. Yeah. That's the only thing that can unite millennials and Gen Z and Gen X is our, our shared resentment of baby boomers. It's a great universal. Well, if you didn't buy that Starbucks coffee every day, you can have your Midtown Manhattan apartment. And one of my bosses <laughs> in New York told me that once. He said that I bought coffee too much and that if I could, if I just gave it up, I could afford a, an apartment in New York. So that's what I always think about Thanks. boomers. Boomer, boomer lectures. But 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 in the, I actually, I always felt like the kind of, reoccurring theme was this idea that I kind of related to was the idea that everybody says, Oh, I thought I'd have it figured out by now. And I, I think not only when I was maybe 23, but even now, I often say, God, man, I wish I would have, I feel like I should have had it figured out by now. What am I doing? And it's not like I'm not, but I I think I always thought that there would be like a point in which it would all click. And instead, it's, you know, it's obviously a much more complicated journey than that. And so even even now today, I think that was like one line that they kept on going back to was this idea that she would have it all figured out by now that I kind of empathized with because I wish I still had had it figured out by now. Same. (laughs) There are aspects of the coming of age story that are like universally relatable, even as much of the rest of the movie is. I think I think I figured it out. I think it's Gen X cringe is what it is. Mm -hmm. Like (laughs) cringe is a relatively recent heuristic for for understanding media and cultural production, at least in in the social media discourse, at least. But that's what it feels like to me. It's the danger, as Nico said, of having everybody who works on a project be of the same age is you have no critical lens and therefore it's going to be kind of like annoyingly just like marinating in its own juices and sorry that's a really disgusting metaphor <laughs> but it's cringy it sounds like a turkey that's cooking itself and Gen X is not unique in this there's conversation on the internet now about the millennial Gen Z battle lines or whatever and my stance on it all is every generation is kind of cringy 
all of our coming of age stuff is cringy if, if we don't have someone else take a look at it and give it another draft. Coming of age is extremely cringe. And honestly, that's why it was a little weird seeing Lainey's very bad reaction to what was you know, just a straight up reenactment of the real world, which is what I grew up with seeing is like, oh, yeah, this is what life's going to be like in your 20s. And I was like, <laughs> oh, like, you know, why are you mad about that? And then again, at the post credit scene were the things that those people said so much more cringy than what Ethan Hawke said earlier. Nobody eats all the eggs. God, <laughs> Nico, you feel Jen. Gen X to me. You feel like a Gen Xer trapped in a millennial's body to me. I do? Yeah. I mean, in that I was raised on a lot of Gen X entertainment, I feel like I kind of really relate to the people in this movie in a sense. Like, I feel like I, I, I understand them and empathize with them, but have enough critical distance to know like why what they're doing is like shitty and problematic. But I think that this movie is such an interesting time capsule in ways that it doesn't intend. Like, I actually, I'm a little glad that it doesn't have enough, like, foresight to know the ways in which its characters are acting selfish and shallow. Because I think that if we got perhaps a more distant, uh, removed depiction of Gen X life, it might not be as authentic. Like, the ways in which, like, the characters are annoying and navel-gazing, like, feels so perfectly Gen X-y to me that I'm kind of glad it all happened the way it did. Because if not, we would probably have something that didn't capture the mood of the, the era uh, well enough. Like, the fact that, like, it does have all of these limitations and these, like, little quirks about it feels kind of perfect to me. So you don't want to see the Noah Baumbach version of this film where he's making fun of everyone while... Samantha. Oh. I mean, that would be great. He's actually already made that movie. It's called Kicking and Screaming. It's a, it's a much, much, much better movie than this. It's It was his first film. It has its... Uh, Josh Hamilton, Olivia Diabo, and a very young Parker Posey. It's about a bunch of uh, people who, again, graduate college and struggle to, to move on with their lives and sort of just end up hanging around their old campus. But, but yeah, it's actually, it's really smart and sharply observed. And I highly recommend it if you watch this and went like, this is fucking bullshit. Can I say... I, I thought that when you said kicking and screaming, I thought you were talking about that soccer movie with Will Ferrell that's okay. also called Kicking and Screaming. <laughs> and I, directed by Noah Baumbach. Directed by, and I, I could feel the world like shattering around me. No, so fun fact. I once, uh, so when I first got obsessed with, with Kicking and Screaming in college, I asked my boyfriend at the time to buy that movie for me. He asked me, it was like a birthday or something. And he asked me what I wanted. And I said, that movie, because I think it was on recently on Criterion or something. And he went to the store and the only thing they had was that Will Ferrell movie. And he called me because it, he was so confused because it seemed so out of character for me that it literally <laughs> merited a phone call. <laughs> like he was standing in front of the movie, staring at it confusedly and was like, this is what you want? <laughs> Bless, bless his little dearly departed as your boyfriend heart. That uh, <laughs> he turned out to be a real dick. So, you know, it all evens out. Yeah. Well, fuck that guy. Yeah. Truly, if we've taken if we've taken anything away from this podcast, it's 
Fuck that guy. Yes. Fuck that oh, guy. Exactly. <laughs> God. We're talking and about Troy, right? You know what? Yes. I think this is the section of this podcast where it's time to go all in. Let's fucking hate on Ethan Hawke as Troy in this movie. Let her rip, everyone. Like, what is Troy's thing? You know, like, I'm shocked. Like, I'm shocked that he's stuck with college long enough to graduate. Like, that seems so out of character to who he is. He's still, like, ten hours out, baby. He's not quite graduated with that philosophy degree. Yeah, he's still some credits, I remember. Oh, oh, he's not. (laughs) Well, what did he major in? Like, what? He's almost graduated. He lacks, like, a semester. (laughs) He majored in dry shampoo. And uh, (laughs) he failed. Failed terribly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he just sucks. He has nothing to say and yet just wants to say things. And that was kind of my frustration overall with the characters. It, it, It reminded me of like girls in that sense of just that very cringy, like age 21 year old desire of like, I have so much to give to the world. What do I have to give? I have no fucking idea, but uh, it's a lot and I want to give it. Well, what I hated the most was like his, his, it's so like his band is his passion, but then like, it, I think she, I, I forget exactly what the scene is, but like there's a big deal made about him going to his band practice, like dragging his knuckles or something. And I'm like, if this is your passion, like you should be doing it all the time. Are you like, and it just reminds me of like, you know, as somebody who went to art right. school and stuff, it just reminds me of all the people who like are, are supposedly like, you know, passionate about it, but like so half ass, like, like if, if you love something, go all in. Oh, remember when he, he wakes up after the, like, they sleep together scene and it's like eight in the morning and she's like, where are you going? I thought that was going to be like a, he secretly does actually have a job that he works. I thought like, that too. Or something like that. But no, he, he was, he was just running out. I thought he was going, I thought he was going to go to interview at the factory or something and like show that he's like growing up. I thought the truth bomb was going to be, he was going to say, cause there's this, there, I thought he was going to say, I'm going to go work at Whole Foods. Cause there was that scene where she said like, you could never get hired at Whole Foods or something <laughs> like that. And I thought it would just be really funny if he was like, I'm going to my job at Whole Foods. I actually thought he was leaving to go work on his band. Cause like, cause that's what he says. Right. And I was like, Oh He's taking her advice. He's like applying himself because that's what she said she wanted with him to like work in his band more. And isn't that nice? He really is growing. And then it just turned out he was really shitty. Uh, also, his band name is terrible. Hey, that's my bike. That's the best I could come up with. Come on. <laughs> and you know, the second like a record label discovered Ethan Hawke and was like, we want to sign you, but your sound has to be more poppy. He would be like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but he would absolutely criticize Winona Ryder for doing the same thing. I just have that vibe from him. Oh, yeah. Like he would actually sell out in a heartbeat if he got the chance. Oh, yeah. I fucking hated him. The only time <laughs> he gave her attention and he and I don't even know where the fuck their supposed best friendship forever had sprung from besides being good looking people who wanted to fuck each other because he only gave her attention and approval when she was failing at things, when she got fired from her job, when she was on the down for some reason. And he was really nasty to her 
her in all of her good moments. And I thought that he was going out to do something really good with his band, that he was going to surprise her with something great that night. And instead, she goes out to the same fucking no cover coffee shop to see him play (laughs) as every fucking night. And not only is he just doing whatever there, but then he fucking perverts the violent femmes into singing something nasty aimed at her. And I disliked it very much. (laughs) I'd been stiller wasted his good tickets for her to go argue for her vision and have it played on a national TV station and have it cut the way she wants. She just ran away for this greasy haired coffee shop guy. My only comfort is knowing that they're unhappy now, these characters. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm th- like, okay, but Christian and Nico, I want to ask both of you individually, how long do you think their relationship lasted after the end of this movie? <laughs> I, so I, I strangely, uh, I feel like it kind of mirrors my own life. And like when I graduated from undergrad, I, I was going to school in rural Oregon and I moved back to Portland and I took a job on a food truck. And maybe that's my equivalent of like, Janine Garofalo's character working at the Gap, you know, <laughs> but then I think you could only do that for so long, and even let's say date shitty people for so long. And this is again, just at least in my experience, before you're just like, I'm fucking over this. So in in the universe after 23 in this movie, I bet Ethan Hawke stays a loser and. Winona goes to grad school, meets her true love, and then just like me, moves to Los Angeles and lives happily ever after. Yeah, I like that answer too. The thing is, is I think that Winona Ryder's character has like, she obviously has a passion, even though it's not good, which I think, I think everybody is capable of greatness, even if let's say they're not very good to be good. Because what 23 year old is good at anything, you know, maybe that's too broad of a brush, but you know, art school kids at 23 don't know anything. And then I think that with some time and some focus, I think she figured it out but i don't think ethan hawk's character ever did he is incapable of growth yeah i don't i don't think i don't think so so he was actively resistant to growth in every portrayal we saw of him and contrary to your point i do know one 23 year old genius and she is the co-host of this podcast like I said, I, I I think I may have painted with too broad of a brush. Also, my my younger friends who are more successful than me are probably just like you, bitter bitch. <laughs> I will say that having had lots of Ethan Hawke like boyfriends in college, he actually reminds me of one in particular who shall not be named. But I could see them being the kind of couple that you hate because they just they break up. And then they just bitch about each other for weeks and weeks. And then they inevitably get back together and they just end up being stuck in this like Jean-Paul Sartre cycle of codependency for years and years. And you just beg them to just murder suicide already and get it over with. <laughs> that's, the, that's the couple I think that's, that I think they'll be. I uh, Actually, I'm with Nico. I think that they do this. And I think that it stretches for four years before one or the other... <laughs> find somebody else. That's my prediction. I think it ends in murder-suicide after 10. (laughs) (laughs) I think think they break it off after a couple years, but then they keep occasionally cheating on their current spouses with one another every once in a while. I don't think think they can fully... They got something going on, you know? Damn. So I would give... 
Reality Bites, three rent controlled bedrooms out of five. It, it works really well as sort of a distillation of Gen X, uh, oh, to Gen X. And I will give Troy not Whole Foods, not Half Foods, but zero foods from me. <laughs> <laughs> I I would give I would also give the film a three where I find the characters sometimes to be obnoxiously disappointing as human beings and it's frustrating clear up obviously until the end it's a really aesthetically good movie I, it was easy to watch even though you're like oh fuck these people it's really it's an easy and entertaining watch also any film that loves big gulps as much as i do most definitely gets a passing grade we didn't even have the chance to talk about all the product placement in this film which is how the film was funded and a movie about not oh my god <laughs> so i love big gulps therefore we'll give this at least a passing grade of uh, a three out of five i would say i would give it three and half maybe four uh, South American HIV test delivery wagons out of five um, in that you sort of like have to ask yourself what you're grading it on and if you're grading it on like a movie that I love hanging out with and spending time with I think I'm a lot more favorable to it because I just, as a hangout movie, right? I think it's a great hangout movie, like one of the all-time great hangout movies. But as a rom-com, it sucks. Like as a, as a hangout movie, it gets like five out of five South American HIV test delivery wagons out of five. But like as a rom-com, it's a really bad rom-com because it's not even very interested in its own romantic subplot. Like it seems to just like kind of treat it as nothing more than a plot device that it doesn't seem too concerned with examining. And as like, as a rom-com, I'd give it like two South American HIV test delivery wagons out of five. So I think that perhaps (laughs) even down to maybe like a three and a half. I'm bad at math. So somebody else will have to tell me. I'll give you a rating system of a five out of five. I can. Yeah. I I also give it three... I give it three car phones out of five. <laughs> um, <laughs> minus minus one star for the minor existential crisis that it gave me as I was watching it. And another negative star for Ethan Hawke's greasy hair, which I will have nightmares about for the foreseeable future. I can't get it out of my mind. I hate it so much. <laughs> Man, I used to love that greasy hair. Oh. <laughs> it's so it's so nineties. Like I look at that and I think of all the guys with that DiCaprio haircut at my summer camp. And uh oh, well, but I'm gonna grow fun. mine out and not wash it for you. Absolutely <laughs> fucking not. <laughs> that moment I'm fast. Well y'all <clears throat> all right. I give this one for Janine Garofalo's florals. Two for Steve Zahn's everything. Mm-hmm. Three for the tailoring of all those button downs that Winona was wearing throughout. Four for the soundtrack. And honestly, I, I and five for the way Whoa. that Winona left left her job as an intern. However, I will now subtract for Ethan Hawke never showering, literally for probably like a period of like 60 days throughout the movie. Down to, I will give this a three out of five. (laughs) (laughs) You took us on a journey yet again. (laughs) 
And my God, you guys, I am still, I am so sorry. I am, uh, I have been blasting Samantha and Sadie who do not give a fuck about this. How offended I am by Ethan Hawke's very poor half cover of the violent films added up as a way to wound Winona Ryder. And for that cover of added up, I give zero of five stars. (laughs) (laughs) Our condolences to the violent femmes. Also, sorry, Gen X. Uh, Millennials suck too. Um, (laughs) We're all terrible. (laughs) Humans are bad. And reality bites. Ah! really gonna be something by the age of 23. Honey, all you have to be by the age of 23 is your terror terminator!